Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The LitFest salons aim to provide provocative, relevant discussions in a dynamic and informal way. There is food, drink, and good old-fashioned audience participation. On June 17, 2013, the topic of the salon was 2020 Hindsight, What We Wish We'd Known About Writing. The panelists were Stephen Schwartz, Lynn Wagner, and Stephen Katz. Thank you so much for coming to uh, 2020 Hindsight, What We Wished We'd Known. Um, I was thinking about this topic, and I know some of you probably were too, like if you could send kind of a message back to yourself with all your wisdom that you've gleaned. And all I could think is when I was in high school, if you have really big hair, you don't need a perm. You don't, I mean, if you already have big, kind of curly, unwieldy hair, Andrea, just don't do it. That's what I would say. And the blue eyeshadow, no. No. Um, But I think these are going to be even more deep and evocative. No hair. And tonight's panel, I'm very excited about. We have a wonderful group of three writers. Um, I'm just going to read their bios real quick and bring them on up. Stephen Schwartz is professor of creative writing at CSU and fiction editor at Colorado Review. Very discriminating journal. Only takes the best. Um, He's the author of three story collections, To Leningrad in Winter and Lives of the Fathers, and recently published Little Raw Souls. Highly recommended. And probably back there with the tattered cover. That's right. Back there. Um... He's also published two novels, Therapy and A Good Doctor's Son. His fiction has received the Nelson Algren Award, the Sherwood Anderson Prize, the Cohen Award from Plowshares, the Colorado Book Award for the novel, two O. Henry Prize Story Awards, and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. So he's going to be up first. Uh, Lynn Wagner is the author of No Blues This Ruckus Song, which won the 2009 Slappering Hole Press Chapbook Competition. She received an MFA from the University of Pittsburgh, where she won the Academy of American Poets Prize. Um, Lynn has taught gifted high school students in a poetry apprenticeship program, as well as grade school students with the Western Pennsylvania Writing Project. Her poems have Uh, have appeared in Shenandoah, 5 a.m., and Subtropics, among others. Lynn has been a fellow at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, so she's going to be second. And then Steve Katz um, started with The Exaggerations of Peter Prince in 1968, won the America Award in Fiction with Swanee's Ways in 1991. Many books of fiction and poetry came between, screenplays, small films, Recently, he published Antonello's Lion, a novel, and then he published Kiss, with extra S's, lots of S's, a miscellany, a book of short works, Time's Wallet, a selection of his memoroids, arrived in 2010, the complete memoroids, 
all 137. Um, a total memoir in shattered form will be published this fall. I happen to know he also directed and taught in the CU Boulder writing program. So these are our three panelists. They're going to share what they wish they would have known um, years earlier. And please give them a warm welcome. Thanks, Sandria. Is this okay? Can everyone hear me pretty well? Um, so I have um, put my remarks down here on paper. It's just easier. It takes about oh, 10 minutes, and then I will sit down. Oh. Okay. Your first public performance, second grade, a talent show, or a show and tell, you're not sure which. All you remember is that you do not just like Elvis Presley, you are Elvis. You go around the house singing Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog. It's 1958 and your parents are busy doing 1958 things, like seriously discussing the possibility of building a bomb shelter and forbidding you to hula hoop in the house. You're convinced your version of Hound Dog will do Elvis proud. Forget Elvis's gold lame suit or pompadour with the killer stray lock down the forehead. For your performance, you have only a starched white shirt that you wear to Hebrew school and hair so insistently curly it would survive a nuclear bomb, <laughs> speaking of mutual assured destruction. You unbutton the shirt to your breastbone. Do the best you can with the curls so they look windswept and not like the orator Cicero with a laurel wreath on his head and you belt it out. The crowd, you have to admit, is rocking, or smiling encouragingly, or relieved not to be taking a spelling test. No matter, you're in the zone. And yes, your eyes become heavy-lidded like Elvis when you come to the second verse. Yeah, you ain't never caught a rabbit, and you ain't no friend of mine. And then, then, it happens. You look right at Irene Milligan. She is a rather big-boned girl for second grade, formidable and blunt. Her favorite expression is, stuff it, moron. None of the boys dare tease or challenge her because she has a track record of compromising her masculinity by twisting their arms behind their backs until they cry master, which she prefers to uncle. Irene is staring right at you. She is not entertained. She is not amused. She is not rocking or clapping her hands and swaying her head back and forth like your best friend Warren as if he is blind. In fact, her eyes are slitted. Her arms crossed over her chest. Her lips pursed with what you would have to say is unmistakable dissatisfaction. You freeze. You stop right in the middle of your unaccompanied performance. You return to your seat. People are confused. So are you. <laughs> you don't know exactly what has happened to you, but years later you will understand. You have met her, or him, or they. You have met the critic. <laughs> what you don't know yet, but wish you did, is that you are not this performance this thing you are doing. You don't appreciate how many hours you will waste confusing you, whoever that is, with what you produce. You will continue to identify with what you do, 
which will soon enough be writing. Hound Dog and Elvis will be put aside when you slowly realize you actually might be tone deaf. <laughs> and behind all that pursuit will be Irene, the critic, like original sin, always there with her arms folded, that slightly perplexed, slightly cranky, slightly hostile expression, what is basically, though you don't conceive of it as such in second grade, a WTF bubble above her head. <laughs> and you so wish someone had told you that you will never please Irene, or not enough, and that it would be so much easier if you had just stood up there and continued singing, your eyes skyward, belting out hound dog with evangelical rapture, not for Irene, but for Elvis. You're 21, and very fond of telling people you're going to be a writer. Such innocence is cute. Cuter still is the fact that people believe you when you haven't actually written a word. <laughs> You've been afraid to write because that would spoil the perfection of what you might actually write. But your last semester of your senior year at the University of Colorado, you get up the guts to take a creative writing class. It's 1973, and everybody wants to be an artist, or at least anti-something or other materialistic. So classmates and friends, especially if they're stoned, even your parents, despite monetarily supporting you so you can eat your one meal a day at Furs Cafeteria, have no trouble accepting this claim of yours. The problem is, you have no idea what to write about. You think you do. You think you should write about what you know, because everyone has said that is what you should do. And sure enough, you do in this so-called creative writing class where the professor, a man named Art Kistner, meets with the four of you signed up for his course the first day. You have been closed out of the good professor's class and, and informs you all that there will be no class meetings, no instruction, no discussion. You are simply to go home and write three stories. Hand them in one at a time to him. You will meet for a conference over each for an hour. Don't be late, because you will receive an F if you do. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> okay, you think. I guess this is the way it's done. You write your three stories. You hand them in. You're terrifically excited, especially after a professor tells you you're one of the three best writers he's seen over his years of teaching. Although, honestly, how many students can you have at four a semester? <laughs> but never mind. You've gotten that boost of confidence. You're set. But wait. He also remarks that he happened to show one of your stories to two other readers, to his wife and to, well, some associate or other, and they only made it to pages six and eight respectively. <laughs> Were they that bad, you ask? No, Arthur Kistner tells you. They just weren't important enough for them to keep going. <laughs> oh, you say, important as in boring? No, important as in meaningful, he says. Oh, you say again, and leave. It takes you a long time to understand that despite all the sensitivity of your writing, the sensitive characters, the sensitive feelings, the sensitive typing you've done on onion skin paper, you are missing something big. It won't be until years later when you're living in Portland and your girlfriend at the time sleeps with another man and you have to face your abysmal despair and anger and eventually write a story about it that you understand something you wished you'd known earlier. You have been afraid to really write about something that hurts. You've been afraid of your own material. Your story just sits there, which is to say no one wants to publish it, until one night you look at it again and realize what's wrong, the ending. You're afraid of the ending, 
That is, you're afraid to have occur what you've been afraid of in real life, abandonment, a bullseye of a core issue for you, and that what you fear in your life, you've not allowed to happen in your fiction. And then it comes to you, the final two paragraphs. You send it out, and it gets taken immediately, as if it's an entirely different story, as if it's just been waiting for closure. And you finally understand what writers, people whom you think of as real writers, have been saying. They don't write, they rewrite. One's power as a writer comes from being willing to create and destroy. You have to be both Shiva and Vishnu, that wacky fun duo, and live with the exquisite contradiction that both are equally necessary to the process. There are few things in life besides writing that require so much of it to be sacrificed for the greater good. The pushing ahead in writing and the letting go require the same act of will. As I sit here writing this, I'm aware of that process and aware too that I still struggle with it after all these years. My ego wants to get it done right on the first draft and tells me I may or must get lucky. And who wants to waste time writing something that will only be discarded? My experience tells me to instruct my ego to back the fuck away from the desk, put its hands behind its head, and assume the perp position on the ground. <laughs> writing is, and always will be, a mixture of excitement and dread. No matter how much you try to separate them or eliminate the latter in favor of the former, these two will always be inextricably linked and necessarily so. To do dangerous work, to take chances and risk failure, both emotions have to be present. Fear and excitement are precisely what grab hold of an image, a family story, a word spoken in anger or shyness at a party, a forgotten memory, and snag these to germinate the process of creation. You can waste a lot of time, and believe me I have, trying to rid yourself of the fear part, <clears throat> but let me save you the trouble and tell you not to bother. Welcome it instead. And while you're at it, welcome all the misfires, that is the abandoned drafts at work for one or two or five pages, then go dark on you. They may seem like false starts at the time. They may make you feel stupid for thinking you could create a story out of so small an idea or event. And they may sting in their abandonment because you were so excited when you first began. But rest assured that after time has passed, and I'm talking about hard time, sometimes as much as five years or more, you may open up that file if you still have it, and you should, that's the point here, and find what was a dead end suddenly becomes a glorious avenue forward. Never throw away drafts of unfinished work out of a mood of discouragement. Those moods are temporary. The promise of the writing is not. And let me offer the opposite advice that comes after years of not following it myself. Don't wait too long. There is a best to use by date stamped on any piece of prospective writing, after which content can go stale. You can be too removed from the material or forget details or, God forbid, become infirm or just lose the spirit, drive, and passion that once connected you to the subject. It can all feel like another lifetime ago and not in the way that it's good to have distance on. The bell does indeed toll for thee, or at least your once great idea for a story or poem. Delight and surprise. Oh, how overlooked these are in writing. At some level, I truly didn't understand that it's this moment of surprise that I was looking for in my work. 
It's a quality hard to describe, this surprise and delight, and it can be realistic or strange, whimsical or poignant, oblique or shocking. Think of when we discover in Shirley Jackson's The Lottery what all those folksy neighbors are up to on that June day. Or Alice Munro's magician's touch for convoluting time and memory to arrive at a moment in her story, The Progress of Love, when a mother burns up $3,000 of desperately needed money, supposedly, or so we think at first, in front of her husband. These moments are worth working for and toward because they make all the hard and sometimes punishing effort of writing worthwhile. It was Robert Frost, after all, who summed it up by saying, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. And here may be the subtlest lesson of all I wish I'd known earlier, how to look. I had some idea as a younger writer that I was supposed to write about the big subjects, whatever they were, love, injustice, war, never mind that I was never in one, death, success, failure, money, betrayal, loyalty. And well, in one way or another, I did write about these things, if not at all how I imagined. But I didn't understand how to attend to that yes, still voice inside that recognizes the unknown, that takes the sounding on the unformed. So reading an article in the paper one day about a quasar further and more powerful than any scientist had discovered before, or hearing an obscure fact that Hitler once had a plan to deport all the Jews to Madagascar, or finding a V-gram that my father sent to my mother during World War II about two hungry French girls to whom he had given all his chocolate allotment, I soon became aware that these are the powerful signs that gobsmack writers and evoke the unsayable. They are the very overheard remarks or images glimpsed or items read or photographs recovered or family anecdotes retold that allow you to sneak up on the big idea, Emily Dickinson's counsel to tell its slant, and that have the sustainability to grow from their seed entire poems, stories, novels, and trilogies. It's good not to ask why this and not that saps you. It's good not to question these notices, for that's what they are, notices from your creative subconscious. It was perhaps the most significant realization of my writing life to learn to covet these notices, tend to them like orchids in an underground hothouse until they're ready to bloom. It's hard to say if I'm any better or worse off for not knowing what I know now. Would I have been happier knowing how hard it was going to be to write a novel in the trial and trail of aborted attempts, not to mention those turned down by publishers that have been left behind? Would I be happier to know that I discard, roughly speaking, 20 pages for everyone I keep? Or that it doesn't get any easier to face the blank page, just different after you've been writing for 30 years and had some different, uh, decent success? That at one time I was afraid I didn't have anything to write about, and now I'm afraid I've written about it all. Or how hard it is to get back in the habit of writing once you get out of the habit. No, these things you shouldn't know at any age, because they all come down to the same question, one you've asked before. When you knock on that door, that portal to seek the dubious arbiter of your purpose on earth, and ask, am I really supposed to do this with my life? And no answer comes at first, and you wait, and you wait, and just as you're walking away, you hear the faintest reply, stop bothering me about a question you already know the answer to. Thank you. Submarine down. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, thank you, Stephen. Can we hear? Yes? Okay. Um, so I also have prepared remarks. Um, mine are not uh, story-like or um, they're not even a poem. Uh, and I, I, I differ uh, from Stephen in that my... Um, my genre is poetry. Um, I was not born in 1958. My parents were not married in 1958. I never wanted to be Elvis. Um, and, I mean, also, and I don't know that this is in context with my advice, because my advice is going to be kind of like straight advice. Um, but uh, I wasn't an English major in college, and... And, you know, maybe because I was partly afraid to say that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and I didn't go to grad school until I was 35. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't um, studying and writing poetry before then. Uh, so these are my brief remarks. <clears throat> Honestly, my thoughts of advice on what I wish I would have done earlier in my writing life strike me as one long therapy session. I think I'm still learning. I think there are some practices I did intuitively that have served me well as a poet, but by the same token, I am sure friends and teachers tried to tell me some of the things I will say to you, and somehow I could not follow them. I hope you can now. What I wished I understood above all is that poems especially drafts of poems, are not precious. Regardless of how slow of a writer I may be, I accomplished little by following Gustave Flaubert. I spent the morning putting in a comma and the afternoon removing it. I know I've spent my days breaking lines of a mediocre poem. The poem might be slightly better after this exercise, but I haven't gotten to the heart of the writing. More importantly, a new line break does nothing to help me understand what I want to say in this poem or any other. I've spent nights making music in the absence of sense, obsessing over poems without ever attempting others. And really, I write poems. Yes, it's the noblest genre. <laughs> How long would it take me to complete a draft? One week? Two? The more drafts equals the more poem problems, plus, the time, plus time for earlier drafts to rest in a drawer while you struggle with the next challenge. There is a difference between revising and editing. A few poems in your lifetime will come automatically, but you can learn more about making good poems by struggling with revision rather than fiddling, obsessively, with editing. Each poem will teach you something, even the ones you abandon. This does not mean I will turn into the type of writer that must produce. Awful word. So many words per day. My poetry does not work like that. I should, however, follow Samuel Beckett's worst word, worst word ho, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Mary Rufel in the essay Kangaroo Beach says it for me. 
You simply cannot learn and know at the same time. And this is the frustration all artists must bear. I'll say it again. You simply cannot learn and know at the same time. There are other things I wished I learned earlier. I wished I had known or understood what type of poet I am and to recognize that in my teachers and the poets I read. Last summer, Jake Adam York defined it best. The lyric, he said, is based on the idea that there are only two people in the universe, the speaker and who is spoken to, and sometimes by connection the reader. This certainly would have helped me in the years 1991 to 95 when I was studying with a confessional narrative poet who favored the same. It would have helped me years later as I was developing and doubting my voice. I wished I would have learned to steal earlier as a writer. I hope it's still true. It was 25 years ago that in the museums of Europe, students have easels set up and are copying the masters. I know 15 years ago, I was literally typing up poems and putting them in the OPP, Other People's Poems folder, based on a comment by Patricia Smith, who thought, if you love the poem enough, you should take the time to write it out. I now have over 500 poems in the OPP, and a vast majority of them are typed, not cut and paste from the internet. Heck, I even know a person who spent a year copying out Paradise Lost by hand. Mary Oliver talks about imitation in the poetry handbook. Tony Hoagland kind of offhand showed it to us in class. He brought in the opening of William Carlos Williams' Asphodel, That Greeny Flower. He also read the opening of Paradise Lost. See that, he said? You should try it. Stanley Fish tells all in How to Write a Sentence. If you learn how to master the form, you can employ it naturally when you have something important to say. But you have to play with the power of language to be able to use language powerfully. Of course, we will each say something about reading, but you didn't. You didn't say something about reading. Oh, well. We still had another panelist. (laughs) For me, there are two regrets. One, uh, not learning earlier how to read a book of poetry is a book of poetry. Noticing how poems are tied together in a book, their ordering, sectioning, similarity, and variety, the arc and theme of a book. For me, I agree with Dorothea Lasky that poetry is not a project. But a poem does exist, and if as a writer-reader you are always dipping into anthologies, selected or collected, it will be harder to understand a poet. Plus, you will also be stunned and amazed by their greatest hits. It's a good experience. It's good to experience less-than-great poems that even our heroes make. Second, be prepared to approach your reading as a catch-and-release program. Denver Public Library Library has a decent selection of poetry books, and if you just randomly pick up the new ones, or any for that matter, you can dip your toes in with impunity. It's also actually important for libraries to know that the good books are circulating, so that's why when I go to a library, I take out 
library books, even if I've poetry books, even if I've already bought it, just so that they're getting those statistics of people are borrowing library books. Um, even in grad school, I wished I would have become more comfortable and unapologetic about my developing taste. Not that I would never read language poets or John Ashbery, but there are so many books to read. Why waste your time on what you do not enjoy? Like chasing every single lima bean around your plate. Okay. Um, this, this must close it out, but I, you know we want to have time for questions and answers. Finally, we must learn to be kind to ourselves and be with the people and do the things that support our writing and cut back or cut out that which doesn't add to it. Tim McGraw said it about country singers, but it's true of writers as well. We're both insecure and egotistical at the same time. And he hopes that equal amounts of both are the only thing that is going to save us. Um, you have to look for things. We have to look for things to, to help us to keep going. Because as someone once told me, you just keep writing. Allison Joseph, editor and, po editor and poetry editor of the Crab Orchard Review, in an acceptance speech said something very true. Every writer needs a sustaining force, a mentor, what, that one person who believes in your potential before your potential even exists. Let us treasure our mentors we have in our own lives, those voices who say yes when everyone else said no. Let us treasure them, and when we are strong and able, let us become them. We have to find our strength where we can. Read writers' letters and biographies. Be kind to yourself and supportive of others. Another person's success does not lead to your lack of success. I'm going to close with a, a Facebook posting also from Allison Joseph. She wrote this um, kind of about this time last year. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that you may just want to kind of put in your commonplace book um, or put it by your desk. She wrote, and this was like a status update on, on Facebook. I believe in you. Do me a favor and believe in you, too. Well, thank you for these great presentations. I, I don't have anything so thoroughly re prepared. Um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about about my failures in the writing business, which has doesn't have much to do with the art of writing, but is all, but is is something that sustains sustains you as a writer because you can put food on the table. And I'm going to tell you a story of when I, when I first um, started writing, or when I first started publishing in a big way. Had a book that came out with Holt Reiner and Winston. Uh, I felt like I was about to enter the ring with the Norman Mailer, uh, and I got a phone call from someone who I assumed was. Uh, was a kid in college 
inviting me to a party. And, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll go to this party. This is in New York. And so it was on a night I played handball. I was a big handball aficionado, four-wheel handball aficionado. And uh, so I went to this party, and it, as I approached the building, I had my first uh-oh, because it was the building right next to the Dakota, if you know the word, where the Dakota is in New York. And... and uh, and and I walked into the door, kind of disheveled and in half in my sweats, and with a, with a gym bag. And uh, seven doormen descended on me, and, and and I I told them where I was going, and uh, oh, they said, okay, yes, it's on the second floor. I said, what apartment? Oh no, it's the second floor. <laughs> and uh, so I so I went up and went to the door and rang the bell and the French maid opened the door. And the woman who had invited me was someone who I hadn't heard of before. And this is a story about doing your due diligence and knowing who you're dealing with. It was Jean Vandenhuvel. Jean Vandenhuvel was the daughter of Jean Stein, who founded MCA, and who who was big in the movie industry, of course, and had had infinite money, uh, and owned owned the whole second floor of this enormous building. And, you know, I was a little shocked. And they invite, she invited me in very graciously. And there was the whole radical chic crowd. You know, Tom Wolfe, Norman Mailer, you know, everybody, I recognized a few of them, all each walking around in, in his own... Uh, in, in, in his own bubble of self-importance, and and, uh, and I'd never been in a crowd like that before. And a good friend of mine, a painter, said, "Don't be afraid of of uh, money and power." But I was scared to death of money and power, you know. And, and so I, I came in, and she introduced me to some people, and I slowly shrank to a spot behind the hors d'oeuvre table because the people putting out the hors d'oeuvres were the kind of people I was used to hanging with. And uh, absolutely, was absolutely unprepared to present myself in this crowd, which one little contact might have made a big difference in my career as a writer. I mean, I'm not complaining. I've done well enough. And, uh, but if I'd studied this and these people, uh, I would have had something to say to them, maybe. Actually, Jean's, Jean uh, Vandenhuvel, you know, her, her husband was William Vandenhuvel, the curator of the, of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You know, it, it, 
She invited me to 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 lunch in a couple of days, and I went to lunch at her place, you know, and brought out they brought out the hors d'oeuvres and everything. And she asked me, uh, she asked me, well, did you ever think of writing for the movies? You know, at that time I'd published quite quite a bit, uh, and in, in some of the major journals, which at the time were New World Writing and the Evergreen Review and places like that. And I said, oh, you know, William Faulkner, you know, tried to write for Hollywood and, you know, and, you know, he'd go and he'd come and et cetera, et cetera. Little did I know, and this, this goes to the point of knowing whom, with whom you're dealing when you get the chance, that she had recently published an interview with Faulkner in the Paris Review, which I was I hadn't had the presence of mind to look for. I didn't know who she was. And also was his mistress. <laughs> so 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 I, you know, I, I was blabbing about something I knew absolutely nothing about, and totally blew this, you know, this chance in my life to to be a contender. <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, it, I mean, all the points that, that we've made about about writing are great, are great. I mean, writing is a great art, and uh, and uh, but you've also got to sustain yourself, and it's important to to pay attention to uh, the people that you come across and don't lose that network. An interesting thing was when I taught at Cornell, there was this kid who was making his way through by doing card tricks. Uh, and it was Ricky Jay. You all know who Ricky Jay is? Oh, he, he's this incredible, probably the best president, press the digitator in the world now. And he would come to my office and, and say, I don't want to be a, a magician. My whole family are magicians. I want to do something else. <laughs> I want to be a writer, I, you know. And he was making his living by, you know, he has this one trick where he can throw his card over a six-story building, throw a playing card. And, and he'd make, make his living taking bets on that in uh, on the street. And I'm really sorry I lost track of Ricky Jay. So be be careful and keep your contacts firm. Anyway, that's all I want to say. Yes. Uh, well, what was the smartest thing you ever did? Uh, boy. Um, you want to answer that, Steve? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you've done. I mean, just, <laughs> one of the smartest things was to be here. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, you know, just uh, for me, it's. I, I, this is a good question. I mean, yeah. I have to go home and think about that. Give me your email, and I will. <laughs> I, I I really don't know about that in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I guess one of the things this is kind of following up a little bit on what Steve is saying is that it's been very hard for me over the years, and if I could save anybody um, duress about this, it's been hard to separate the business of writing, which is actually the writing, from the writing business. And I I think you know some of the smarter things I've done is listen to the people, particularly my wife who have taught me how to do that um, over the years. Um, because you really do want to erect a firewall between those two. That's all, you know, and they do bleed into each other too much. So, you know, I, I think that's something I didn't know. I, th- I thought they were part and parcel of each other. You write something, you send it out, you get published, you're happy, it reinforces your next thing. It doesn't exactly work like that. So I don't, I don't know if anybody else wants to answer that question. Well, well, the way I I've, I I got to the exaggerations of Peter Prince published at Holt Runner and Winston was I don't know if it was smart. It was a, a combination of luck and smarts. I've got a copy of it here. Anybody wants to look at it? It's a very um, it's a, it's a book that's got a lot of graphics in it, and, and that was in 1968 before it was easy to do graphics in a book. Consider, and the reason I got it, got, the reason it got published is that I was at a dinner party. So this is this is to the point, you know, where the network was working, and it was at the house of a fairly well-known pop artist, and. Uh, who was with a wonderful, a wonderful writer and biographer named uh, B. H. Friedman, who's passed, and uh, the editor of Hold On and Winston, Arthur Cohen, and he's the man who first published paperbacks in the United States, which is a huge, uh, a huge uh, enterprise. And I'd published a piece in the Chicago Review and the the painter, Jimmy, had left it in the bathroom. And Arthur went down to the bathroom at a certain point. Uh, And he was there for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, for 30 minutes and we thought well he's reading the damn thing you know and uh, and he came up and and said well send me the manuscript and we'll we might do it at Holt Ryan and Winston so that was a bathroom publication probably <laughs> probably, probably the I don't know if it was smart but uh, it was both smart and lucky I suppose and then, I don't know. I, yeah, no. I haven't. No, I haven't done anything smart. But I, I, I think my. I think the thing to share, and and I'm going to quote Hayden Carruth, who who is a poet I admire, is, he says, 
you have to to make the person who writes the poems so I think that you know you really have to partly just my development as a person is is informing my poetry and and maybe that's because you know poetry is very intimate there's not a big business angle to it you do it out of love um and and I think it's just sort of the longer I go about it, the more I understand that more. Yes, John. Yeah. So, for any of you or all of you, uh, what would you do the same? Whether or not you knew what you were doing. You were doing. Uh, what the question is? What would we uh, do the same? Um, and. You know, for me, I, I, I think, in that, I think that's what I was trying to say. And what I read is that I'm, I'm not sure how much you can change uh, about anything um, in, in the long run. Uh, everybody has their own path, really, to becoming a writer, and uh, you, you, you can't know in advance. I mean, everybody wants a formula for how to do it, how to publish, how to write the story, how to do the poem. Um, and you start finding out that, um, and this is one of those losses of innocence, there is no formula for it. Um, and, you know, I was just, uh, I got an email from a friend today, a writer who was talking about a, a friend of his, I think she was on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, uh, her name is Lionel Shriver. And she wrote a book about uh, something about, let me, what's wrong with Kevin? Is that the title? Or. Uh, we need to, yeah. And he was saying, uh, did I see that? And I, I, I said, no, I hadn't seen it. And uh, he said in the email, and then in our subsequent conversation, that um, they used to be very good friends and they had a falling out. And he, he told me that she had uh, published, um, you know, five books and then couldn't get anything published and her agent dropped her. Um, and, uh, and then she published that book. Uh, with a small press, and it it became famous and an Oprah book. And I mean, how do you get there? Um, and uh, you know, you could you could try and do exactly the same thing and publish your book with a small press, like I did, and fall off the face of the earth. You know, <laughs> it's not you, you know, it's too unpredictable in, in that way. Um, so you know, I I just I had one last thing here is that. Um, one of the things that I learned is that it is really impossible to predict what's going to happen to you as a writer. In my workshop at University of Arizona, I sat next to somebody who I thought was one of the worst writers in the class. Um, and it didn't help that he, the very first story I had up, he attacked himself, uh, you know, uh, imprinted on me like a duck that I didn't like him. But, uh, yeah. But I don't know if I told you what actually happened with him. Um, and so, you know, I just thought his, his prose was turgid. And if you would have asked me who was going to succeed, I would have said, certainly not him. Um, and I don't know if I said this last salon, but he went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> so what do I know, right? But that's, it gets back to what I'm saying, is that you, you, it's very hard to predict anything in this business. 
Well, so I, yeah, I said in my talk, I, I don't regret and I still um, type up poems. And then the other thing, and, you know, one of the things that I did when I was preparing for this is I asked a lot of people, like, you know, what do you wish you would have known? And, and similar to what Stephen's saying, it's like, well, what happens, happens. Like somebody said, well, I wish I would have started earlier. Well, you know, you can't fix that now. Um, so, you know, here you are now. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I did do is that I studied with a lot of teachers. And I think that that's good because everybody's got a different angle. And, you know, in terms of regrets, um, Jean Valentine was a visiting writer at uh, the University of Pittsburgh where I went. And I didn't take her workshop. You know, I was tired. Like, I, like the, the semester before, I had been in a workshop. I was, like, workshopped out or whatnot. I was like, oh, you know, I mean, I should have done that. <laughs> but other than that, though, I've actually studied with a lot of different people, and you can learn something from everyone. So I, I, think, I think actually of the variety of teachers. Like, when, the, you know, when I was referencing, you know, the person of 1991 to 95, it's like, that guy hated my poems. And, you know, it's, in some ways it kind of affected kind of, I didn't even know where I stood. And it was partly because it's like, A, I didn't understand where he was coming from, but also maybe, you know, he didn't know how to reach me, he didn't care to reach me, who knows. But sort of getting a lot of people's input and a lot of different teachers is, is a good thing. As far as the business, business angle goes, you asked what, what would we change? What would I, we change? Is that what you asked? Or what, what would I do the same? Everything. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as far as, as far as what I said and the business angle of, of writing, it doesn't interest me. What interests me is the word and the language and uh, the art of fiction and the art of poetry, because I write poems as well. Uh, and that that is too immense an enterprise for me to want to change anything. <clears throat> the, no, the, the, the notice, what I noticed, I, I came up in New York with a, with a really heady group of, uh, of people, and some of them had natural inclinations to business, for instance, uh, Philip Glass was a, was a good friend of mine, and he did business from day one with his music. He, you know, enterprises I thought would fail always succeeded. Of course, he's a great talent, you know, and, and, and kind of a genius compo composer. Uh, almost opposite, someone who who was. It seemed like the most hostile man in the world was Richard Serra, who's a sculptor who uh, just pissed everybody off and they loved it <laughs> you know <laughs> and and, uh, and just watching their examples I thought where could I could I fit into that and the answer was no you know I was uh, I, I'm, I'm a writer because I like to write put it out there and retreat you know, and leave the work out there. It's not. Some writers succeed, nonetheless. 
but I wouldn't do anything different than, than what I've done. Okay, so, you know, Marguerite Yourcenaro, the great French writer, said that, um, you know, it's always the things you do that have nothing to do with writing that become the, the things that really create, you know, the best work that you do. And like Steve, for example, we've known each other many years. Um, I know that you lived like many different places and just left everything in New York, all the business stuff, and went to Italy. Mm. And I'm just wondering if that's one of the things you might cite as something you did that really had, you know, did not have to do with the business of writing or, you know, might have even seemed self-destructive in retrospect if you're thinking about making contacts in New York. Would that, I mean, you, I'll let you answer the question. Uh. Well, of course, you know, I, I mean, my life wasn't governed by the fact that I write, but I did things, I did things that sustained my writing, like, like living in Italy was totally privileged and great, you know. I also had, for years, had a place in Cape Breton, which I don't know, how do you know where that is? That's in Nova Scotia, in the north, it's a gorgeous place. And I, I was lucky to get there before it became hardly uh, known and uh, spent many summers, you know, most of my summers there. And that had a great effect on my work. Uh, also, some of the practices I've done, uh, some Sufi practice, some, uh, I've, I've done uh, internal martial arts for many years although that's sort of become irrelevant. And, uh, I mean, all those things impact your, 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 uh, your writing. I had three sons, and uh, that was important. I mean, it, 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 uh, there's nothing in, in your life that you do that's irrelevant. You know? Is is that what yeah. you were getting at? Yeah. I mean, can you be more specific? I mean, maybe you can't be about, you know, what is the connection about of uh, leading a life that's outside of writing that's, you know, um, inspiring? Well, uh, well, for instance, the one thing I noticed specifically was was doing internal martial arts. One of them is Tai Chi. Uh, I noticed that my lines. And I think of my prose writing as written in lines as well. Have the pace at a certain point in my life, and and movement of the tai chi. And uh, you know, the ocean informed my life and uh, informed my work in Cape Breton. Yeah, this is a really good question about um, experience, really. And uh, and our, our daughter, who's 21 now, is thinking of going into a um, an MFA program in poetry, and we're begging her not to, um, you know, not to continue with the family curse. Um, but um, I mean, the real reason is we're just advising her to wait and accumulate some experience in her life. I was very glad that I didn't go back to graduate school until I was 30 years old, and I had a bunch of different jobs, all kinds of jobs. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that that's one of the laments now is that I've done the same thing for, for 30 years. 
and I, you know, I'm not accumulating experience more. And one of the things I sort of learned is that um, you have to depend more on your imagination as you get older. You have to do more research. You have to stretch yourself as a writer. You can't just write about things that you know about anymore or even base them on that. I mean, for me to write, I have to feel some connection to something. I have to feel some kind of nugget or, or germ there that I feel, you know, that it's, it belongs to me. I put some claim on it. Um, so... You know, you have to keep accumulating that experience somehow, getting it somewhere uh, to feed you as as a writer. I mean, it's very hard to write in isolation. Somebody, somebody had a question. Oh, okay. I just wanted to say one more thing. Um, when I when I took the job to direct the creative writing program at, at CU. The, the, first thing I did was gather the graduate students and say, and this was a big mistake, to say, uh, the first strike against you is that you're in this program. (laughs) Which was bad for business. (laughs) And wasn't actually true. And, uh, but, you know, know, it shook them up a little bit. So, So, uh, what I meant to, for them was that they should be out getting experience, you know, getting the experience that makes the poems and the writing. And, go ahead. I have no discipline. Um, Actually, you know, um, a mentor of mine, he was being um, interviewed by someone, and and they were saying, do you write every day? And his answer was, no, do you? And, you know, I mean, sometimes that's true. So I I guess I write. I'm not the person to speak to discipline because I'm still working on developing it. I'm, you know trying to figure out how to balance my day job with my writing. Uh, so I'm going to pass it to Steve. <laughs> yeah, I've fallen off the wagon myself. Um, uh, even though I've had a lot of time this year, um, I, it hasn't produced a lot of results. And um, what I know about this is that I will eventually you know, get back on the horse. I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors here. Uh, I'm bringing a rocket ship soon. Uh, But, um, you know, nevertheless, you get the idea that uh, that's what I've learned over the years. I mean, it's one of the few things I really know for sure is that I've been in this bad place before where I can't write for whatever reason. And it doesn't matter whether it's a matter whether you've been rejected or you've succeeded. In fact, success can hurt you worse than rejection, actually. Um, So... I know it has to become a mechanical process. I, I have to sit there for an hour a day, put on a timer, and and just do it. Um, and, you know, everybody is sort of making their own sort of mix here of how much work they have to do, you know, to make money versus how much time they have versus how, many take, how young their kids are. It's always a work. In, it's always evolving. That's the thing. And what you, what you come to realize is you get this sickening feeling in your stomach when you're not creating, when you're not writing. And that's what you have to use to get back to discipline. That's all I know about it. 
I, I just wanted to say that, that, that when I'm writing a novel, uh, <clears throat> I schedule a couple hours every morning without fail to devote to writing. No matter how early I have to get up, and I, I've done that particularly when for writing prose. And uh, I don't think I could have done anything without it because I'm naturally lazy. But if I schedule it and make sure I do it, the thing eventually gets written, even if only a paragraph a day. Any other questions? Except when Lynn, you mentioned uh, the variety of teachers mm -hmm. and how important that's been to you. Uh, yeah. For those of us who uh, have not gotten an MFA, and Lighthouse is kind of a long-term MFA. Sure is, us, sure is. Um, do you also recommend, have you found conferences or retreats or residencies helpful in any other way? That I did as well. I mean, you know, so, you know, Lighthouse itself has our forms of retreats of Grand Lake and, and what's the other one? There's another one. There's Fair Play. There we go. So the prose writers do those more. Um, but, but, you know, I think it's, it's important to have a place and a community, and I think that Lighthouse has that. For me, before I went to grad school, um, there was a conference I used to go to in New Hampshire um, that I went I actually went every summer. So first I went as a participant, then I'd like be a participant and an auditor, and then I'd just like go there to hang out because I knew people and I was like, you know, I was actually like running food in the kitchen and helping with, but it was just, I got to hear a lot of readers and a lot of teachers and a lot of lectures. So, I mean, kind of here in the West, I bet you kind of have to, travel a little bit for that but I was in Pennsylvania when I did this and and it, it you know it's sort of what happened was I decided like oh I'm gonna kind of do a learning vacation and I decided that I needed to get outside of my community to get a sense of where I was at at a writer as a writer and actually in terms of smart things that was a really smart thing for me to do because I was in a you know not a small town but I'm in this town in Pennsylvania studying with the person who's, you know, he's got three books, NEAs, he's got Guggenheim, maybe he's got the thing, but it's like, I'm actually not getting a lot of props in terms of, and so I actually had to sort of step outside of that place to see how do I measure up, and one of the things that I did was I went to New Hampshire, and then, you know, I found this very special community that was good for me, and I got to, you know, Every year, I'd see five new writers. And then I was in Pennsylvania. I'd drive to New Jersey every year for the, or every other year for the Dodge Poetry Festival. So, I mean, I, I got to see people who are dead now that I wouldn't have gotten to see, but I was in this concentrated place. You know, just like um, an artist colony is a concentrated place to write. Yeah, um, I think the answer to this for me has always been what do you need at a certain time in your writing life? Like, do you need to go to a big conference like Breadloaf? Do you need to go to um, something like McDowell, if you can get into these places where you just write? Um, do you need a small writing group of just a few people? Do you need not to show your work to anybody at this time? Because 
it's some, sometimes you need to insulate yourself and let me be blunt about it. Sometimes you need to protect yourself in your work and there are other times where you need to expose yourself and you have to expose your work. So you can hold on to the work too long and overwork it and go nowhere by not showing it to people who really help you shortcut it. But there are other times that it, it, it's too early to show it. So y there are all these options along the way. You know, whether it be conferences, whether it be individuals, whether it you know, be just one person you're working with, think about where your writing is and what it needs at the time and what you need as a writer. On that, uh, just to, to, to top off this, uh, I, w I wanted to uh, to say when, when another thing I tried to do when I when, when I first when I first started directing the program at CU was to get an interdisciplinary program going. I think it's important for writers to be around musicians, to be to be around painters. To be around people in the other arts now, it's all the arts that grow out of technology. And it was impossible to do because of the way curriculums is, are set up. And uh, it, really, it really bothered me. But an artistic community is a whole artistic community. It's not just a community of writers. And, and I learn so much from listening, from having the privilege of listening to composers talk about the, they're the smartest people in the arts or dancers, you know, to talk with dancers and, and uh, le I learn as much from them as I do from other writers and just, maybe this is my closing remarks here, but um, it, one of the things I've, I learned over the years um, was how indestructible the writing is. For somebody like me who considered himself, you know, sensitive feelings, sensitive typing, all that kind of thing I said in my, my remarks, um, I, I, I was surprised how much criticism I could take. And I was surprised, for instance, when I first started out writing, I was writing in the early 70s, and I wanted to imitate Coover and Barthelme and all these people. And then I, I went to graduate school in the 80s, and I wanted to write like a minimalist. And I, I never thought that I would actually find what I wanted to write about, you know, or my voice. And somehow there was something there from the beginning. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, is, is that you really think you're more sensitive than you are, actually. There, there's something that wants to survive you, <laughs> you know, as a writer. Let's get another beer. <laughs> Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.